some of the information mentioned in this episode has been affected by the current coronavirus situation. Check the websites referenced in this episode for the most current listing of the events, activities, or dates that are most current and relevant. You're listening to the Neighbors and Nations podcast. Welcome to the podcast today. So thankful you're listening. My name is Todd Stiles, and I'm the host of Neighbors and Nations, a podcast designed to stir within us a heart for missions, both local and global. And what an opportunity to hear today from someone who has navigated the waters of both outreach to neighbors as well as missions to nations. Her name is Sarah Hensel, and she's got a beautiful story with some exciting highs and, to be frank, some very deep lows. Sarah is currently a stateside missionary with Wycliffe, but she has spent time on the foreign field, and she was a key player in a local church plant in her own hometown, our church, in fact. So Sarah's been a longtime friend personally, and she's one of our global partners here at First Family. And it's a joy to bring you into her story today. So let's get started, shall we? Here's my conversation with Sarah Hensel on this episode of Neighbors and Nations. Welcome to our podcast today. Man, I'm really excited to, to have our guest with us, Sarah Hensel. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm really glad you're here. Uh, as a listener, you're going to really benefit from our conversation, I know. And, and, and just tell you why, because I think Sarah, and I've not told you this, Sarah, ever, but uh, I think Sarah is one of those women that I consider a real hero. And you're going to hear why I think that in this podcast. And Sarah, I want you to know I'm so grateful for your longevity and steadfastness to the cause of Christ in a number of different ways and for not giving up in some very deep trauma and trial. So thank you very much. So um, let's just jump right into it if we can. This podcast is about neighbors and nations. And what's unique about you is that you've got some experience in both of those. Currently, you're a software developer for Wycliffe. Is that correct? Yeah. So I work for Wycliffe Bible Translators and with um, SIL, which is a partner of Wycliffe's. And um, so what I do is make software tools to make Bible translation easier and more accurate. So I work from Iowa, but the things I produce are used in translation projects all over the world. And they're primarily used in places where there isn't a copy of the scriptures. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Wycliffe is all about getting the Bible into every language. And there's Amen. a lot of work still to do. It's, it's amazing that in this day and age of the technology, you can work right here from Iowa. And yet your focus and your emphasis is on groups that have zero or little access to the gospel. Right. Yeah. That, that's got to be a financial win for the kingdom in the end because— we're saving, I mean, I hope this is okay to say, but there's there's a substantial savings in not having to send you. There's no outfit and package. There's no housing and language time and learning that. It has to be a win. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's still got to be people on the ground, sure. but with technology, there's teams all over working together. The team I'm on right now, um, one guy's in Dallas and one guy's in Indiana and I'm in Iowa and we meet every morning uh, by, via Skype and... So yeah, that wasn't to demean cool. frontline workers, but 
It's just great to no, think absolutely, about yeah. the support role that you play, which is vital to the frontline work of getting the scriptures translated. Yeah. I, I think I've heard this before. I don't know. Maybe you can comment on this, that it takes about 10 support workers for every one frontline worker in these hard-to-reach, maybe least-access areas. Have you heard something like that before? I Yeah, I haven't heard that, but I okay. can believe it because there's a whole bunch of us doing the support roles to get the people on the front lines to be able to do their work. So can you say, uh, if you can't, no problem, but can you say maybe what language you're working with right now or where you're targeting your work? What part so of the globe? So the tool I'm working on right now is for oral Bible translations. And so in the past, they've always started with a written translation. Um, and now we're kind of coming around to maybe we just start with an oral translation instead of focusing so much on trying to teach somebody to read so that they can read the Bible. In oral cultures where they don't have a written language, our output is going to be an audio Bible. And so the tricky part with that is how do you do error checking if your output is audio? It's pretty tricky even when it's all written to make sure you're using the same word for God in all the places, the same word for mercy, the same word for mm. grace. And there's another added dimension if it's just audio. Wow. With that being said, that's what I'm working on. And so our target is those languages that have never been written. Okay. And so that's all over the world. So your tools that you're developing actually will be designed to work with a number of different languages. Any language. Okay. Right. I understand better. Yeah. That makes sense. So we... Uh, focus on on making it easy to use basically in any language. Wow. So you're, you're working with multiple languages like English and then the foreign language and then the computer language. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's just amazing that uh, to think what God can do and how he's using you in this way that who knows how it will just blossom in some other country. Yeah. You know, as the gospel gets translated. That's just great. I know this isn't your first missions rodeo, though. I mean, your heart for the nations has been evident for years. Walk us back through maybe your first full-time missions landing, we'll call it, where it was. Just kind of walk us through that. Yeah. So my family and I went and moved to Jamaica in 2007. And originally, we were at uh, Bethel Christian Mission, which is a at that time was a camp that hosted short-term mission teams. We had been there any number of times. Um, Y'all made a lot of short-term trips to yeah, Virginia for we, years. We made a lot of short-term trips, and then um, my husband organized short-term trips. So he That's would right. go out and um, contact small churches that couldn't put together their own mission team and just make available a trip that people could join to just to give small churches the ability to have a mission focus. And um, so we did that for a number of years and then moved there full-time in 2007. And we were just there a short time at Bethel Christian Mission. And then we took a step back and then we joined teams for medical missions in 2009, I think. So with teams for medical missions, we lived on the north coast of Jamaica near Ocho Rios, and we started the Bible Training Center of Jamaica. That's a three-and-a-half-year program night school to train pastors and lay leaders and the essentials of what they need to know to teach the Word of God. Now, for those who don't know, uh, we were involved in that whole process because yeah. we were your sending church, and 
what's unique is you helped plant this church. You and Randy did. So we have a long connection, a lot of relationship. But the phrase I remember that you guys brought to the table was when you went to Jamaica that, um, I'm not sure it was the first or second time, but this idea of to Jamaicans, through Jamaicans is... Right. And I think that was one of you and Randy's main goal. Maybe explain that phrase and how it plays into the Bible Institute. Yeah. So maybe in the past, missionaries come in and they think they know what they're doing or <laughs> they sort of maybe try to change the culture. Um, we wanted to train Jamaicans um, to change their own culture, to have that be more of a grassroots effort than um, than maybe some past mission efforts. I mean, I don't know. But anyway, that's what we were hoping to do is 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 focus more on training Jamaicans versus planting our own church. Uh, we wanted to teach them how to plant churches. You didn't want to come in as like this, the, the one and only rescuer. Right, right. Then you leave and suddenly they're back to square one, right? Exactly. Yeah, I always, ad- so. I always admired that and really respected the goal being that one day you'd probably leave there, but yes. the ministry then would stay. Yes. Yeah. And it's a good thing we had that, uh, that whole attitude because yeah. that's what's happened. And it's still there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I just went down to the fourth graduation of the Bible Training Center of Jamaica, and it was it was a joy that it's still going and um, still making an impact. Yeah. I'm going to get more into maybe that side of your story in a little bit, but that's kind of the the nation part of you that I love is just you have a heart for the nations you always have, and you've gone down there on short-term trips, you, you moved for a while, and now you're working with Wycliffe to help bring the gospel. But what is unique, I think, is that um, your own conversion story really kind of involves just the church being a good neighbor and to your kids and to you. So kind of tell us again how God brought you to himself uh, through a church that just loved his neighbors. Right. So we— had been going to a church, to a very liberal church that didn't impact your life at all. We slipped in and out of the back, going there for <laughs> years, didn't know anybody's name, I don't think. Uh, anyway, uh, our neighbors invited our preteen kids to to go to some kids' activities at Grace Church with them. And pretty soon our kids asked if we could change churches to that. To, to Grace Church, and we thought, oh, I don't know, those, those people that go to Grace are they're, they're kind of weird, you know? They go to church on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights and Wednesdays, and oh, that's just a lot. And so we told our, you know, we thought it was a good idea, you know, if your kids want to go to church, you want to support that, you know, but we weren't really spiritually at a place where we were supportive. So, you know, we said, yeah, we'll We'll bring you, but only on Sunday mornings. We're not going to do the Sunday night thing. We're not going to do the Wednesday <laughs> There's thing. limits here, right? <laughs> yeah, there's limits. And so we started taking them to church at Grace Church, and we met God there. And Amen. pretty soon, you know, it was a completely different experience to be going to church to meet with the living God versus just mm. slipping in and out of the back. Pretty soon we were there on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights and Wednesdays and then classes on Tuesday nights. And really any time we could get there, we were there. And so our neighbors moved away, I don't know, 10 years ago, and we're still in contact with them. And wow. so we appreciate them. And Grace is a strong missions church. And, Absolutely. And even locally. So it's, just, it's amazing to me how both of those usually go together. I, I, don't, I don't meet too many people who love their neighbors 
but yet hate the nations. Right. And I don't mean many people who love the nations and yet despise their neighbors. And I love the fact that it was a church and some people in that church who just reached out to you and your kids. And yet, if you were to go to Grace Church, you'd find a strong nation-loving church as well. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Talk to our listeners for a moment uh, from that perspective. You're the neighbor. Folks around you, they're loving you. They're trying to reach you, so to speak. What's what's a key thing that someone listening to this podcast who has neighbors who are yet to be believers, what what can they do? What How should they think? What were, what were you thinking at that point as an unsaved person? Like, talk to us about the neighbors for a little bit. You know, they got to us basically through our kids. And so <laughs> I, you know, I'm a big uh, supporter of kids activities, VBS, invite your neighbor's kids to VBS, invite them to various holiday activities. Um, but then you also have to invite the parents at some mm. point. You use the word invite. And I think that's an overlooked and yet very simple first step that a lot of folks just sometimes can't cross the threshold and, and get the courage to do. But I read just a few weeks ago that 82% of people say that they would say yes to an invitation to church if asked by a trusted friend. Mm-hmm. And so I think, well, if, if someone's living next door to me, maybe I could work up to that place where I'm a trusted friend, you know, in some way, and then you could extend an invitation. And what if that one simple invitation was the beginning of hearing the gospel or of meeting other people. The the other part of that stat was this, that only 2% of regular attending church members actually invite Never anybody invite to church. Anybody. So the numbers are in our favor if we invite, but very few of us really are. And so I heard you say that word twice. Like, just if you're living your folks who are lost, don't be afraid just to invite them. You never know what they might say. And that's really what happened in your world, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Did you consider your neighbors trusted? I think uh, so. If yes. you sent your kids with them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting. And so I love your story because it just shows so much about both of these things. Here you experience neighbors loving you, and yet here you are now serving in a way that helps the nations. Um, And even when you planted, you know, with us here at First Family, that was a heartbeat you and Randy had for this area because you left the church you were at to help us plant this church. Yes. That probably wasn't easy. No, it wasn't. It was, yeah, it was a decision, but we wanted a neighborhood church. You know, there's a lot about your past and those stories, and uh, but I know that your time with Wycliffe here has come through a very deep valley. Yeah, I don't want to tell your story for you. I just know that I remember that this, the night I got, the Saturday night I got the call as your pastor, just knowing I had to come and tell you the hardest news you probably ever would hear. And I didn't know how to say it. I didn't know what to do. I, I, I was inexperienced and ignorant on top of everything. I but I remember just praying, asking God, like, God, I don't know how this is going to go, but um, we need your presence. And so that probably really, I don't know what that's like, but just share a bit about how that, that, that deep valley and yet your commitment to trusting God through it. Yeah, that was a hard day. Um, and I don't remember what I was thinking when you came over. Like, I didn't think it was weird, even though you, you know, don't, didn't visit often, but... <laughs> I thought you had something to chat about, and um, it never occurred to me really? that you would have had news from mm. Jamaica. It was a shock, but for those who don't know the story, um, Todd was coming over to tell tell me that my husband had been murdered um, while he was back in Jamaica checking on the school we had started. We were on our one-year furlough. Uh, so we were back in the States for what we thought would just be a year, and he had 
uh, gone back to check on things. And so uh, just a kind of a random act of violence, uh, but he and our mission partner were both killed. I remember telling a friend who came over, this was, I believe God had a plan, but it was a really stupid plan. <laughs> I, I didn't agree with it at all. I didn't see, I didn't see how this was, how this was a good plan. I know there's Lots of people out there that think that a lot of times. I don't see mm. how this is good. But um, you never know how your faith is going to stand up to a real trial. And wow, that's, I that's um, was, just, you know, actually kind of surprised that my faith held up as well as it did. I never doubted the presence of God. I never doubted that God was in control. I didn't know what he was doing. Um, mm. But I was so glad that I had the foundation that I had, that I had enough biblical knowledge to know that God doesn't always, that your comfort is not his top priority, that he's got this plan uh, that doesn't always look good in the moment, Mm. Uh, but he's got a plan for the ages and it all weaves together somehow, Um, and that your momentary tragedy and discomfort somehow brings him glory. And so I was so glad I had that foundation that I could just rest on that. But it didn't make it easy. It's, mm. you know, that helped, but you still have to you still have to get through the hard times. One of those hard times I suspect was knowing that he was his body's in Jamaica. You're back here and just how hard was that to go back that first time and deal with all that logistical stuff? Actually, I didn't have to go back and deal with it. My mission okay. director went. Okay. You know, I had five kids here who had just lost her father. I wasn't going to go jaunting off somewhere else. So we kind of hunkered down here, and my mission director went there and helped with all that logistics, identified the body, and actually brought his body back. Um, and so, yeah, I was I was thankful. I I was so thankful I was here in Iowa when it happened versus being in Jamaica. I, um, I was so thankful for the way my church family came around and uh, my friends. And so, yeah, I was I was grateful to be in Iowa when it happened. Hmm. That's almost counterintuitive, isn't it? Yeah. Anything else in that journey? And I imagine you're still on it. So this is not to try to say you're through it, but anything else in that journey that maybe ended up being very counterintuitive to you that you thought, man, I didn't think this, but look what God has done or is doing. Oh, so many things. So many things. My middle daughter, Callie, was in a rebellious Hmm. attitude at that time and had been mad at God for years. And I remember thinking, Oh, God, we're never going to get her back now because she was mad at you already. And now look what you've done. How is she ever going to come back? Mm. But in fact, it went the other way. It brought her to her knees and she realized she could not handle this without God. And so she she actually came back to God um, kind of as a result of this. There's been been other things, too. just the fact that we had we had left the school um, 
in in the care of the people that we had trained to take it over. And they said, we're not ready. We're not ready. You know, and that was one of the reasons why Randy was going back to, you know, answer their questions. And and they just had to step up to the plate and and take it over. And they've done a good job. And we um, we ended up hiring a new director and they've just done a, a really good job of keeping the school going. Um, and just in my own personal life, I, um, I've grown so much in the past three years. Um, you know, I had to take responsibility for things that I didn't have to before. I had to um, just, I don't know, be the person in front. Randy was always a person in front, and I was the support role. And now <laughs> I got to be the person in front, and I didn't think I could do it. But God has just carried me through and taught me how to be the front person. And um, I'm still not comfortable being the front person, but I can do it now. So, Well, one thing you've told me in the last year or so is you do enjoy speaking in front of others more now and that you feel like God has supernaturally gifted you to yeah. kind of carry that ball when you have never thought that was your role before, would you? Uh, no, no. <laughs> yeah. It was something I had to do to be able to work with Wycliffe to raise my own support. And so I had to get comfortable. Well, I had to, I had to learn how to speak in front of people. And um, just through that journey, I became more comfortable doing it and realized that um, I really like talking about God. And Amen. so that's great to hear. <laughs> so I'm comfortable doing it. What was it like when you did go back for the first time? Oh, back to Jamaica. Yeah, I just can't even so imagine. So the first time I went back was for a, a funeral. So we had a funeral, joint funeral for both Randy and Harold. And it was awful. But but you probably knew that before you bought the ticket and before you got on the plane. So you, you knew this was going to be hard, but yet you continued down that road. Yes. Yeah. And all the kids went that time. Um, and then I've been back several times since. Uh, for various memorial services or things for the school. It gets easier. And then this last time I went, there was actually some unexpected joy that I wow. wasn't ex- you know, unexpected. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I was, I was really grateful for that. Do you think in some way you're actually seeing the phrase that you and Randy kind of began with, uh, to Jamaicans, through Jamaicans. you think you're kind of seeing that blossom now? Yeah, yeah, the way they've um, continued the school. And so this was the first graduating class that I didn't, I didn't know personally the students. And so, um, you know, that was hard and joyful at the same time because it's going on without us. It's uh, one of the hardest things to do is to in ministry, and missions, wherever you're working, in fact, is to realize that maybe you're not the middle of the equation anymore. And I think for you to yeah. go back to Jamaica and realize, you know what, there's other leaders, it's blossoming, it's doing well, we were part of the beginning. Uh, that's a lot of maturity on your part. And it's great to see you just embracing your role and still applauding them and their success. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, did you struggle at times with bitterness towards anything there? Or was that a fight? that you had to kind of work through? or When I went back for the second graduation, that was just six months after he died. And um, I just cried through the whole thing Mm -hmm. because he should have been there. You know, he should have been there. And so then 
so that was part of the unexpectedness where I got so much joy from the fourth one is because although he should have been there, it's nice that they're still going. I don't have any bitterness towards the Jamaican people, but it's still kind of painful to to visit. And rightly so. I, I don't know that some things that are deep ever aren't painful. And I'm not speaking here from experience. I just, I really appreciate your honesty. And I, I admire your journey through this, how you've held fast to the Lord. And yet you've been so raw at our church here in a great way. We've just watched you just journey through this. And, uh, well, you've been a strong testimony, Sarah. Real encouragement to other folks in their own valleys. I don't know if this is one of the things God was doing, but it is interesting to me that you're actually, I mean, you've been a software engineer for a while. You didn't right. just become one for Wycliffe. Right. And so you became, I mean, you began to do more software development when you realized you had to get a job, right? Right. And so it's interesting that, that now you're getting to do that in mission work, which yeah. is what you were doing even before Jamaica. Right. When I came back from Jamaica, yeah, I got a job back doing what I was doing before, working for an agricultural company in, in Iowa. And I, I still was just compelled to want to do something in missions. And I, I didn't know you could do both. I didn't know you could be a software engineer in missions. And so I Googled it. And, good old um, Google. <laughs> yeah, good old Google. I, I typed in, I don't know, information technology missions. And I was surprised and elated to find out that they're desperate for IT people in missions. Of course. I mean, it seems logical now that I think about it. Mm-hmm. Every company needs IT people. And um, you can't buy software to help with Bible translation off the shelf because nobody's writing it because they can't pay for it. So Mm. I was just literally in tears to realize that God could use what I'm good at. Tears of happiness, right? Yeah. 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 And so you had to, at some point, then quit that job. Yes. And begin another term of raising support with Wycliffe, didn't you? Yes, I did. (laughs) (laughs) How fearful was that? I didn't want to do it. Because uh, Randy had raised the support the first time, and um, there had been a gap, and so I had lost the support. I did, you know, like it had stopped, and so I had to start all over, and I didn't want to do it. <laughs> and it's a pretty common theme, you know, for introverts to not want to do fundraising. <laughs> um, like I said, as I as I quit thinking about, I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about what God's doing around the world. And I just happen to be a part of it. And I'm just inviting people to be a part of that with me in whatever way they can. In some ways, Sarah, the word fundraising is probably not the best word to use for those kind of moments, is it? I mean, <laughs> no, right. And we don't call it that. Oh, you don't? Okay. <laughs> At Wycliffe Bible Translators, we call it partnership development. Okay. And so, um, and it's more than just a little catchy phrase. That really is what we're trying to do. We're trying to get people to partner with us, just like Paul describes the partnership in the gospel. Mm, that's true. That God will bless you for your contribution to his to his kingdom. I noticed when you're just a minute ago, you said the full name, Wycliffe Bible Translators. So is that common practice when you're out uh, raising support, or we'll call it raising partners? <laughs> is that kind of the normal practice to say the whole thing? Right. So yes, it's Wycliffe Bible Translators. And we try to 
um, use the full name because there are other organizations with Wycliffe in their name, like Wycliffe Associates. And they kind of have a different philosophy about Bible translation that we're adamantly opposed to. And so we try to differentiate ourselves a little bit. We believe in a very thorough process that generally takes a long time. We want people who know the language well to make sure they're not accidentally using euphemisms that they don't really know what they mean. And so generally a Bible translation used to take 30 years, but with the use of technology, now we've got that down to about 10 to 12 years. It's still a process. And it needs to be a lengthy, and maybe the better word is thorough process, because and I think Wycliffe would, would line up with the radius in this. I'm just making an opinionated guesstimate. But uh, it's not just knowing what a word may mean in a dictionary. You, you guys require some in-village or in-country or some cultural experience that the word actually means that in usage. Right, exactly. So that there's not misunderstandings, as you were describing offline a minute ago, that we could translate a verse with the words that we say mean that, but when they read it in their cultural language, it says something totally different. Right. So one example is when they translated, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, the first translation came out, God coveted the world so much that he gave his son, but there was some underlying current of trickery And so he was trying to trick the world into becoming part of his kingdom. And so when they realized that's not what that verse means at all. And so the words were correct. I mean, love and covet, you can see where they got confused and didn't quite know what that meant. But that's interesting. You have to be very careful that you really know what the words mean. I'm thankful for that type of value in place at Wycliffe Bible Translators. And I'll begin to say the full name. How's that sound? Right, right. (laughs) We are in the middle of a, I want to say lockdown, but we've all been at least encouraged to quarantine here in Iowa. I'm curious, I know it's not affected you probably a lot other than just maybe what you're doing here in the state to honor our governing authorities, but how has it affected maybe Wycliffe Bible Translators partners or the folks who are on the field with them? Right. So my department is an IT department. And so everybody moved to their homes. And once we got set up, everybody's carrying on. But it has affected people around the world. Some missionaries were called back to the U.S. so that they could shelter in place here. Missionaries that couldn't get out by the time that call came have obviously been forced to stay. Some missionaries chose to stay Even if they've stayed in country, there's no travel in that country either. So the meetings with um, language groups, the travel to the villages, that's all halted. And so people have had to slow down just like everybody else and concentrate on, you know, their relationship with their family, their relationship with God. And really, I think it's caused a lot of people to grapple with the fact that your worth does not depend on what you do, but your worth depends on on your relationship with God and that God has a different timeline than we do so often. And his timeline doesn't include us working ourselves to the bone. To get things we think will give us significance. Yeah. Our significance does not come from what we do. And I think a lot of people around the world are grappling with that, that their worth is really dependent on the relationship with God, first and foremost. You know, the fact that this is a global pandemic 
is interesting because I think one thing I hope we see from this, I don't know if you're seeing this in your communications with your partners, but the true God is being seen as the only rock you can turn to. Even by folks who may not want to admit that, they're, they're seeing, wow, the only place to find comfort and a solid footing is in God. And everything we thought was big G God that was really little G God, it's, it's like sand. Like you said, jobs, money, the economy, what yeah, we do. This is... You can't depend on that. And you have no control. That's exactly Everything right. you thought you had control over, you have no control over anything. And that your world can just change in an instant. I think this has proved this more than anything. Mm-hmm. Does Wycliffe Bible translators have any way to kind of track if more people are reading their translations? Do on-the-field personnel have a way to kind of get that back to the main office to see if maybe in this time of coronavirus that they're actually taking that time to look more into Scripture? Sure. Yeah. Um, we got reports from Egypt that they're not able to keep Bibles in in stock. They're just really? flying. And version, which is one of our partners, they're able to track usage. It's Downloads skyrocketed. That app probably. Yep. Yep. And so that's great to hear. Absolutely. People are turning to the Bible and online churches. Their numbers are bigger than their normal congregation numbers. And Muslim viewers who wouldn't be caught going into a church are tuning in to online services. So Wycliffe is kind of tracking that or just getting communicated that to them? It's just communications that we get. So some of your missionary partners, I'm not sure if it's in villages or cities, they have that capacity then to go online. Yeah, the ones in uh, like bigger cities and stuff. There are, yeah, there's... Lots of villages and and areas where they're not able to go online. And I just want to give a shout out to those pastors in those churches where, you know, here, if your congregation is meeting, you're getting some of your your donations still online. Mm-hmm. And you think about a village pastor, if he can't meet, he's probably just not eating. You know? Wow. And so maybe those villages haven't even heard of coronavirus yet. If right. <laughs> Who knows? But yeah. Maybe they're just continuing on. I don't know either. It's interesting how in our current time, your digital skills that God's gifted you with and has really been a a win for you personally and for Wycliffe Bible translators in that their impact's not as greatly diminished. So in light of that, let me ask you a question. What do you think is the greatest opportunity in missions today? Do you think it is in digital aspects perhaps, or do you think it's still the face-to-face physical thing or I'm not trying to make a either or but right what do you think it's so not big an opportunity? either or for sure but I think this pandemic has spread the digital use you know, faster than anything else could have and we're very thankful that we had some tools in place already so that they were available but there's nothing that's ever going to get rid of the personal touch that's needed yeah. to spread the gospel Sarah, your story is very motivating and it was very personal. Thanks for just being very transparent with us and sharing more. If someone wanted to hear more, maybe get in touch with you about sharing at their church. I know you love being in front of people, right? (laughs) (laughs) But if that opportunity existed, other folks might want to partner with you. Give us some contact information. Absolutely. So my email address is Sarah underscore Hensel, S-A-R-A underscore H-E-N-T-Z-E-L at Wycliffe.org. That's... W-Y-C-L-I-F-F-E dot O-R-G. And um, that's how you can get a hold of me. Great. We'll put that in our show notes as well, and they can access that uh, through our website too. Um, yeah, caller, emailer, uh, check in with her. I think 
any family, church, organization would be really blessed to have you share your story and hear how God's using you. So thank you very much for being part of the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the Neighbors and Nations podcast. To learn more about how to support this podcast and our partners, go to toddstyles.net slash podcast. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe in your favorite podcasting app.